Good to see you. Glad you're here. I want to invite you to turn in a Bible or swipe there to Luke chapter 4. Can you guys hear me okay? It sounds different up here. Are we getting it? Are we getting it? it sounds different. But I'm glad. Y'all heard me say, turn to Luke chapter 4. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be there here in just a moment. But before we do, as Toby mentioned earlier, and as Toby so, uh, I want to also say thanks to Toby for uh, bringing us such a great word and reminder about creating space last week. So thank you, Toby, for that. Before we get too far, I want to tell you where we've been before we wrap it up. And we'll do that differently this year. You may have already noticed that we have not been sending out partner agreements this time. Every year since we started these core practices, we have annually and prayerfully considered our lives in light of these five core practices. And for those that have said, yes, I want to partner with and walk alongside the neighborhood church, every year we have signed by way of saying yes and amen. I intend to live these five practices in my life with Jesus and in my life with this church. This year, we're not sending around those partner agreements, but we are still committed to living this way. You'll be having an email and in the next few weeks of our gatherings, an opportunity to update your contact information on a functional level. But more importantly, we are here together, wherever you are in your journey with Jesus or the neighborhood church. I want you to also remember that this is the water you're swimming in. This is the air that we are breathing. And for whatever shape your life with Jesus takes, as you do this with us, your companions, these are how we're going to encourage one another to live and humbly and graciously try to live it together. So what we'll do this week as we close out these practices is go back, and I'm going to read these core practices, but not just for your information, but for you to quietly and privately actually say these with me as your commitment as well. And because we're missing so many folks tonight, you'll get an opportunity to recommit next week and maybe the next. Does that sound good? So this is by way of refresher and by way of a recommitment where we read these with me together. Core practice one, we commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. Core practice number two, we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. <laughs> Core practice three, we commit to be to, excuse me, that ethnicity messed me up, and I still didn't fix this typo. Core practice three, ready? We commit to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. Core practice four, we commit to make time for God and others for transformational relationships to grow, and core practice five, we commit to partner with God in his mission to bring his shalom, which is holistic peace and well-being, to our neighborhood and world. These are our humble intentions to live our faith in this way together. So do we actually commit to live our faith this year? 
my answer is that you can prayerfully and as best as you can say yes and amen as we live that together. Well, tonight our focus is to bring peace, our fifth core practice. And tonight we're going to do three things at least. The first is we're going to look at Jesus's thesis statement. How did I say that and not ethnicity earlier? I don't know. We are going to look at Jesus's thesis statement at the beginning of his ministry. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to explore why his hometown crowd got so dang bent out of shape about it. And you might be surprised at this not talked about enough attempt at Jesus's life, not at the end, but at the very beginning. Third, we'll consider the ways that we can follow his lead, even if it costs us. That's where we're headed. And I'm going to pick up a famous passage and a famous recapitulation on an old phrase, an old passage in Isaiah 61. So join me now if you were there in Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. This is after his wilderness encounter. In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now just imagine this. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Then he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All of them spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a moment. But for now, we want to sit with those words and this dramatic thesis statement of Jesus' ministry as we look at bringing peace. But now I want to tell you, as we dive in, about an artist named Alma Thomas. Her middle name is Woodsy. Alma Woodsy Thomas. That's a pretty awesome and unique middle name. For a pretty awesome and unique woman. She's an artist that was born in 1891. She moved to Washington, D.C. when she was a child for a couple reasons. The first is that she had gone through grade school and where they were in Georgia as a black woman in the Deep South, she really didn't have much opportunity to continue her education. The biggest reason was not just lack of opportunity, but the presence of violence. 
In fact, before she was born, it was reported that her mom was the target of a lynch mob. She survived, but they hurt her so badly that she was marked with a loss of hearing for the rest of her life. So those are two good reasons to get out of town. Now, even though D.C. was still segregated at the time that she was growing up, she did have more opportunities, and she was able to go to school. She was able to become a teacher, and while she was starting her career as a school teacher, watch this. She was the one who wound up at Howard University, which had already been in full swing at this point, but they had a new program in fine arts, and Alma Thomas became the first African-American woman to receive a Bachelor of Fine Arts from their program, but also most people believe ever in America. And not just the first African-American woman to receive a Bachelor of Fine Arts, they think she might have been the first woman to receive a Bachelor of Fine Arts. So at this point you think, well, the sky's the limit. Opportunity is knocking. She's been celebrated. She's been educated. She's won all this. But before we see her works in a museum like this, you got to know that Alma Thomas worked her day job for decades as a junior high art teacher. Now, because she's such an incredible woman, she marched with Dr. King she organized community art programs, and she organized community art exhibitions. So she was teaching and expressing herself through her art for decades until she finally became a full-time professional artist. When? After she retired at age 68 or 69, depending on how you count when she was fully full-time. Now you'd say, well, she had waited all that time. She had those credentials. She was starting to gain this notoriety as a community organizer. And yes, her stuff had been displayed at Howard and elsewhere. Well, surely she would have this awesome studio. No, no, no. She was in her family home and her studio was in her living room and she would often prop her canvases up behind her couch. Sometimes her studio was her kitchen. Well, 20 years almost as a full-time professional artist, her national debut finally came knocking. She was the first African-American woman to have a solo exhibition at a prestigious modern art museum called the Whitney Museum in New York. She was their first solo exhibition for an African-American woman at age 81. She wept and wept at the opening of that exhibition. And when they wanted to hear a comment from her, a paraphrase of her comments were basically, it is just a dream realized to be exhibiting here, to be within these walls of a place that someone like me wasn't allowed to visit not too long ago. And the shame of it is, even in the early 70s when this was happening, 
she was still met with pushback. Not only from northern white folks, but even some of her own African-American contemporaries because her work wasn't conscious enough. It wasn't racially conscious enough. But she had this to say about her work. The use of color in my paintings is of paramount importance to me. Through color, I have sought to concentrate on beauty and happiness in my painting rather than on man's inhumanity to man. Now make no mistake, she cared deeply about what happened to her mom. She cared deeply about what happened to her. She cared deeply about the struggle of her people. But in her explosion of watercolor and other media that she would go on to create, she was trying to show a better way. Time and again, with the energy and color of her work. Elsewhere, she was told or was telling of how her philosophy was that this color, her painting, is an energy. And the thing about energy is that it cannot be destroyed. So here's a woman waiting for a place in the art world, waiting for a literal place because she's painting against her couch, waiting to be full time, waiting to be seen, waiting to share her gift with the world. And she, like so many others, know a lot about waiting. She is waiting between a vision of flourishing and its realization. You are waiting in between a vision of fully realizing and recognizing a place to be seen. You are waiting for a moment when all is at rest and all is at peace. You are in between a vision of flourishing and its realization. And Alma Thomas's story is one that shows us what we can do in the waiting. It doesn't mean stop working. But sometimes there's a long time between inspiration and incarnation. Here's what I mean by those terms. Inspiration is a God-breathed vision. The word of God, we're told, is inspired. Paul, in Timothy's letter, said it is God-breathed. That's why we say the word of God for the people of God, and so we say thanks be to God. There is something alive and the energy in the inspiration of the word. But don't miss the middle phrase, the word of God for whom? The people of God, because what is a word if it's not lived? What is a core practice if it's not lived? Our neighbors can't read about our love because that won't put clothes on their backs and food in front of them. So we try in our small ways to incarnate that God-inspired dream in our clothes closet by clothing the naked because we heard a word Jesus said that at the end of it all, the people that he knows will be known as the ones who clothed the naked, who fed the hungry, who visited the imprisoned. And so we want to put flesh and blood on an inspired word. 
So in our little way, we hear that and we say, well, at least once a month, I think we can call together our resources and our time and we can break bread with our neighbors and feed them and feed ourselves because we do the neighborhood table, not because we need more soup kitchens to pat ourselves on the back. We do the neighborhood table because we believe that our neighborhood would be a better place and look more like a God-inspired vision when the reality is that we can break bread together and we can eat at the same table even though we have different stories and backgrounds. We want to bring incarnation to the inspiration because sometimes there's a long wait and a huge disconnect. There's a God-breathed vision for shalom. Shalom, as Toby mentioned earlier, is a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew term. If you've been around our church any length of time, you've heard this a hundred times, and I'm going to tell you again. It is a word that is so much bigger than peace. Because peace in an English and American context rightly means an absence of conflict, an armistice maybe. We pray for peace between Hamas and Israel because we want there to be an absence of fighting and violence. Yes and amen. But Shalom says that's the starting point. Shalom says desegregation, okay, now we're in the same schools, now we can share art galleries, that's a starting point. Last night we started watching that old movie, Remember the Titans, with our daughters. Do you remember that, the Denzel movie? They said, it's Ken. Ryan Gosling is in that movie. And I had a lot to think about my parenting, where like, A, they recognize Ryan Gosling, and B, uh, I let him see the Barbie movie. Um, but he's in that movie. It came out in 2000, and it's based on a true story. Wink, wink. I didn't look in on how much it is, but it's a football team that is integrated because their school is integrated. And what's fascinating is that they have a football camp before school starts because that's what you do even when you're not doing high school football in Texas. And so they have this tense that becomes more and more untense and sweet as they begin to know each other at that football camp. It's inspired, and all of a sudden, we see the walls breaking down, and it's beautiful. And my girls, you can see in the first 30 minutes, they're like shocked at the racism to begin with, but then Toward the end of that football camp, they're like, oh, this is a Disney movie. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. And they were shocked when the first day of school happened, and they realized that not everybody else got the memo, and they had to do it again. Because integration or inspiration, that's the starting point. There is work to be done because there is an absence of flourishing and reconciliation. So we have a long way to go. And so there are people that are blind, that are sick, that are in need, not just metaphorically, but physically. And so we see how we live in between the inspiration, God's dream, that is shalom, holistic flourishing, where everyone is not just tolerant, but everyone is together, that every boat is lifted, and everyone has an opportunity to live and love and to do so in a way 
where they don't fear violence and hate and hurt. And so Jesus steps into the midst of our messy, difficult space. And he does it from within his own people who were called to be shalom givers, shalom livers, and he sees that generation after generation, and even in his modern time, they are failing to incarnate what God had inspired them to be and do. Do you know that if you look back in Leviticus, there was at the very beginning, their constitution that Moses gave, not just the Ten Commandments, but the rest, this idea of jubilee, that every seven years, you must cancel debts, and every so many years, you must let the ground rest, that you must rest from your work. Because when you get to rest and when chains of debt are freed, all of a sudden you get to taste flourishing and every boat is lifted. And forgiveness and integration might be a start, but to reset the deck where all of a sudden we get another fighting chance, that's incarnating the grace and rest of God. Inspiration finds its fullness in incarnation. So Jesus, as we're told in the Gospel of John, now translated by the late, great Eugene Peterson, tells us what happens when the Word, who was with God, who was God, who is God, the God-breathed, God-filled, god period, full stop, word, becomes incarnated. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And we say, which neighborhood? A neighborhood of poverty, a neighborhood of humility, a neighborhood of anonymity, and a neighborhood of a nation that was oppressed just like they had been for years. And a neighborhood and nation that had by all historical accounts, listen, never practiced jubilee. Not one time in Israel's history do we see them actually incarnating the inspiration to bring shalom financially, physically, agriculturally, and on and on we go. So, is Jesus really the word of God, what God has to say, con carne, with meat. We had a lot of people here for the marriage workshop, and we had two new couples that have never been here, and that killed. <laughs> oh my gosh, they were sitting over here, and Amy was in front, and everything I said, they're dying laughing. These two sections had all neighborhood church people, crickets. They didn't give one rip about my old jokes they've heard a million times, especially you, Lynette, and you know it. But I want them to come back, man. I need them. I live for that. They, they're feeding that. Incarnation is God con carne, baby. But is he? Is all this jubilee-style stuff really happening in and through him? Let's hear Jesus' answer. So what is Jesus saying in this text that we read? 
three points and three illustrations, but before we get there, imagine the scene with me. A synagogue is a local expression of the temple. The temple is big. The temple is huge. The temple smells like blood and guts because they're doing sacrifices. That's where the big festivals are. That's the big, like, piece de resistance. The synagogue is like a church in the village, just like what we're doing. They would meet on a Saturday, and here's the kind of thing they would do. They would get together in their worship service and recite the Shema. Raise your hand if you know what the Shema is. If you remember, we did the Jesus Creed class. Shema is a Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word of Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God, now you remember, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it says, do this, say this, all the time and forever. So when they gathered for worship, that's their call to worship, the Shema. Hey, here, God is one. God is here, so love him with everything. The next thing they would do, is they would say prayers, liturgical prayers. They would pray psalms. They would sing these uh, organized prayers that had been written and handed down over time. And does this sound familiar? Sometimes people have come. I had a visitor once. I knew him, so it didn't, like, offend me. But it was like, that was kind of weird, um, like, reading prayers together, kind of like reading it. And I was like, well, I said, it's not just an old Christian thing. It's an old God's people thing in all different expressions, because it helps us learn to pray by praying. And if we're responsible to say all the words ourselves and drum it up, we're missing a huge chunk of what saints and brothers and sisters who have gone before us have handed down as tried and tested ways of bringing our whole self before God. I can't trust myself to do all my own praying. And so it's not just, I think there, there's a dearth in the evangelical um, world that, you know, it's weird or it's Catholic to say these kinds of prayers. I say, I don't trust you to do all our praying from the words that you just make up. Why can't we learn from others? We sing other people's songs. Can we pray other people's prayers? Anyway, sorry. They were doing this for a long time. Shema, prayers. Then they would read the Torah. The Torah is the name of what? The first five books of the Bible. The Torah means law, instruction, or way. And so they would have a Torah scroll. Now, in a town like Nazareth, where, Nazareth, where this is happening in Luke chapter 4, um, they would have two or three scrolls, listen, for the town. You got 66 books and devotionals and content in your pocket. They had two or three scrolls per synagogue. One of them surely was the Torah. Because the Torah was their constitution, their Magna Carta. That's how they live it. And so what they would do is when it came time for the Torah reading after the Shema and the prayers is that someone would like kind of dance and process and walk through the community of people in a room probably no much, not much bigger than this. And it was a way of showing the people that this is the word of God for the people of God. And they celebrated by saying, yes, thanks be to God. And they danced and they celebrated. And so it was going around the room because it was like lifting it up and saying, remember, this is our story. Remember, this is our foundation. Remember, God created us. God rescued us. God called us. Remember, this is what gives shape to our whole life. 
And then they would read from the prophets. And the prophets, which would be another scroll, would tell the community, these are the people that told the community, you failed to live it, come back. And then they would inspire you with their imagery and their wild vision that was God-breathed and God-inspired. And then the prophets would lay it all out at your feet and you were sit there left with, okay, but will we incarnate it? Martin Luther King Jr. loved Amos. They talked about justice rolling down like water. And he loved Amos because it was so explicit, written hundreds of years before Jesus, about how there are too many haves that are not just ignoring the have-nots, but they are actively keeping them as have-nots, and they're oppressing them. And the prophet Amos says there is a lag between inspiration and incarnation, but make no mistake about it, God will bring shalom and bring balance and justice, and it will flood and cover our nation and world like the waters cover the sea. How does the water cover the sea? A hundred percent, fully through and through. So they read the prophets. The Torah reading and the prophet reading, Jesus wouldn't have just said, here's my text for the week. I'm going to preach on this. Wait, Just wait for it. It's going to be a mic drop. It's going to be amazing. No, no, no. This was a designated reading. Do you know that there's something called the Revised Common Lectionary that several denominations in the Christian church follow? If we went to our brother and sisters up there in that room tomorrow morning at the Methodist church, they would read four passages that have been selected that every Methodist church would read on the same day. And some of the Presbyterians and some of the Episcopalians and some of the Anglicans. And so their sermon would try to tie together those readings that are all thematically linked. Okay, now we're back in the synagogue. The next thing that happens after the Torah reading and the prophet reading is the rabbi would sit and teach and try to what? Tie together those readings. Is, it, is this interesting? I just think that there is something holy going on that Jesus, who had just fulfilled and focused and had the inspiration to get this sense of who he was from the wilderness and the baptism, he leaves the baptism hearing, you are my beloved son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And then he immediately goes into the wilderness and he hears the voice of the tempter saying, you're not enough, but prove it. Are you sure? But I believe that the voice of the inspiration of God mediated through the Holy Spirit is no, I know who I am. I am the beloved son of God and I have this vocation to come and bring good news. And then he goes to the synagogue in his hometown after he'd been healing and doing these things, filled and focused and formed by the Holy Spirit. And he sits down and they roll out the scroll and the worship leader who's called the Hazan points and says, here's the reading. And I gotta imagine Jesus has a smile across his face because it's Isaiah 61. 
And Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And everyone waits because of two things. First, he rolls up the scroll. They're all glued to him. And the opening line of his sermon is an opening thesis statement to his ministry. And it is this. I am the one that is incarnating that inspiration. You've been waiting a long time. You have failed to put your shining artwork up for display for the world to see. But what Israel has failed to do, I will do. That's the first thing. And the second thing he does is he edits out the rest of Isaiah 61. I wrestled this week to put the text of Isaiah 61 where it keeps going. And I wrestled because I wanted to put a strike through the words it says, and vengeance is coming. Because it felt weird to put a line through sacred, inspired scripture. But Jesus edits the part about Israel winding up at the top of the heap when vengeance comes. Instead, he highlights freedom, recovery, liberation. His three points are these. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit for this mission. His second point is Jesus is appointed to inaugurate this new era. One thing everybody knew about Isaiah 61 is that whoever this is about is about the one that is inaugurating the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, bingo, here I am. You've heard the inspiration. You are looking at the incarnation. Because point three is it's all accomplished by what Jesus says and does. That's the three points. Jesus' thesis statement that gets told and then watch. The rest of the Gospel of Luke, especially in the next section between chapter 4 and chapter 9, is him showing what he's telling. The next thing Jesus does, after the last part I'm about to tell you, is he goes and practices what he preaches. He incarnates what's been inspired. And here's the thing you have to understand. Because before he or we bring peace, we must come face to face where peace and shalom is absent. I will never forget a conversation that my daughter and I had a year and a half ago. We had just met with a homeless person that we were kind of walking with. And as we were driving away, we happened to drive by Northwest Highway and Garland Road in our city where she lives. And she saw all the tents and all the trash and all the people. And she started crying in the back seat. And I said, Emma, what is wrong? And she goes, I just can't believe how many people have it so hard, so close to our house. 
And she goes, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. It's just not. And she said this all the way down Garland Road. And I don't say this to like brag on her. I'm saying that we prayed since the day we knew we were having Emma and Nora that God would soften their heart, inspire their heart with compassion. We prayed, number one, the most important thing, if Amy was here, she would vouch for you, that they would have tender hearts, compassionate hearts. But the challenge that Emma and I talked about that way and the challenge that we must live, the challenge that we as a church must live is what are you going to do when you're inspired by its lack? What are you going to do to incarnate? Because the gulf between inspiration and incarnation is where churches live. And so we just wonder, can we even scratch the surface? And it's going to cost us. What's remarkable is how Jesus illustrates his sermon. Basically what he'll say next is everybody's eyes are fixed on him and they're hearing about this kind of liberty and, and, and restoration. He basically says, hey, I know that you're going to want me to prove what I did there. And he's talking about all that healing here. The second thing he says, you know, a prophet doesn't have any clout, any honor in his hometown. The second thing he basically says is you won't want, you won't expect much of me. I was typing this, but that looks like my Texas accent and when I'm doing voice to text. You won't expect much of me. Because you don't respect me in my own backyard. The third thing he says, you won't like the people who get rescued. And what Jesus does, you can write this down if you're taking notes, is he references a Gentile widow that got helped in 1 Kings 17 and 18. When there was a lack of shalom all throughout Israel, God initiated and orchestrated a Gentile woman to be a blessing to an Israelite prophet. And they said, when all those Israelite people didn't get help, that Gentile widow did. Second thing you can make note of that he references is 2 Kings 5. Elijah does his own remix of a widow thing. Elisha is Elijah's apprentice. But in 2 Kings 5, there's a bunch of Israelite lepers, but God told that enemy army commander to go dunk himself in that river and he was healed when there was an absence of shalom. Here's the deal and why this is important as we wound, wind home. It's important because God's people love to bring shalom or think about shalom, or live in shalom in theory. When it doesn't cost me anything, when I don't have to look at the world through your lenses, God. But it's a whole other thing in practice. Years ago, I went to a conference before I kind of gave up conferences, unless it was something that I was like directly, you know, uh, like into as far as our like organizations. But this big concert, someone said, I've got a ticket, won't you come? And it was at this huge mega church in the area and probably not the one you're thinking about. I would bet you money. And 
it was this huge worship center that was pretty new. And I was talking with somebody there that was attending that church. And uh, they said, um, yeah, we don't even come close to filling out that whole back half anymore. And he's telling me this story and, and the, some of this and that. And then we finally kind of like walk back to where the offices are. And then I see these canvas prints of people from Vietnam. And he goes, oh, actually, this is why. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, our senior pastor like had a life-changing experience and decided that, you know, we really needed to be in a transformational relationship with the poor in some part of the globe. And it worked out. And we had all these relationships and all these partnerships and all this. And so we started diverting tons and thousands of dollars toward this effort. We started sending all of our church groups over there. We started raising money for this. We started raising money for that. And so what happened? People left in droves. Because they love to talk about global missions in theory, but when it came time for them to incarnate that inspiration and bring peace to people half the world away, see ya. Because we don't like the people that God longs for. Because we don't like the people that God loves. We see higher walls to build and God sees longer tables to set. And he invites us to incarnate what he's inspired us to bring peace and work toward flourishing where we see its lack. But understand this. When Jesus edits out the vengeance, it doesn't mean that the world won't be judged by how they respond and incarnate God's word. Hear me on that. But understand what Jesus is doing in the illustrations he uses and the points that he makes is that it's less about the kind of rescue and it's more about who it's for that made them so mad. It's for everyone. It's for everyone that hears a word of good news to the poor and the blind. And so they get so mad at his interpretation and illustration, they walk him to the edge of the cliff and they're about to throw out the hometown hero. Because you say, wait, weren't they impressed? Yes, they were impressed with his ability, but they were not persuaded on how he's incarnating it. And so they want to kill him in his first hometown sermon after all the work that he's been doing. It's a holistic shalom for the whole world. To bring love, to bring liberation, <clears throat> and shalom where flourishing is not. And so, I leave you with this big idea. Yes, this is Jesus' mission. This is Jesus' thesis statement. Inaugurating God's kingdom. God is on the move whether we're sitting our butts at home or not. I promise you that. The mission is God's, but he is longing for us to stand up and journey with him. So the question becomes, will we, as liberated people, free from sin, death, and evil, will we, as liberated people, partner with the liberating king in the power of the shalom-giving spirit? That's the question. And I want to put up Miss Alma's painting called 
resurrection. This is the first painting by an African-American woman purchased by the White House, Obama's White House. And so in resurrection, what I see when I think about how long she waited between inspiration and incarnation is I see color and energy radiating out from a central source. And what I see is that we who know the peace of God, the flourishing and freedom that God gives, will we look to the one next to us and say, where is shalom flourishing lacking? God, how are you inviting me to step one direction that way and partner with you in the bringing of more love, more compassion, more flourishing? And if that's the person in my roof, then I wonder, okay, I'm walking in this, I'm sensing this, I'm feeling this. So God, where might you be calling me when I step outside of my home and I see in my church and I see in my school and I see in my work where I'm noticing a lack? Are you calling me to do something of this? And the beauty is there's more than one point of energy and love and light. It takes all of us. This is why it is a core practice for our church. And it takes more than clothes next Saturday. And it takes more than food next, next Friday. But certainly not less. So the question then is, will we partner? And you say, that is so big and so huge. Well, let me close with this from former pastor and current CEO of uh, bread.org, a hunger mission, Eugene Cho, he says this, do what you can, do it well, do it with joy, do it with love. Carla and I have a t-shirt that says this quote. Because when you feel like there is so much lack of shalom, would you ask the Holy Spirit, who filled and formed Jesus in his vocation to fill and form you in yours, to do what you can, to do it well, to do it with joy, to do it with love. I don't know that we'll ever be a mega church that has an empty back half. That's fine. What can we do well with joy and with love? Who's sitting next to us that we can love well with joy and to do it in the same kind of self-sacrificial love that almost got Jesus killed, but certainly transformed the world. Amen. Amen. God, we are grateful for an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus and the words of Isaiah and the words of your people Israel. We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear where you are calling us to be your shalom livers and shalom givers in a world that is desperate for more love and flourishing. Would you equip us and help us to be good news and bring good news in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight's benediction was written by our kingdom partner serving in Northern Ireland, Aubrey Smith. May the Lord Jesus equip us to be courageous co-laborers with him in bringing wholeness into this broken world. 
May the spirit of peace shape us into a people of peace. May we faithfully carry this shalom into the spaces where he sends us. May our lives reflect the heart of Jesus in caring for every part of every human, bodies, hearts, minds, and souls. May God grant us eyes to truly see our neighbors and to love them as he loves them. May we stand alert against the schemes of the evil one who rages against peace and wholeness. May God protect us as we battle darkness, and may we be steadfast and confident in Christ's victory over all. May we labor in the hope that God's reign is coming in fullness, that our work is not in vain, and that the one who has the power to raise the dead has promised to make all things new. Go in his peace.